Right, good morning everybody. Great to see you, great to be with you and able to share God's word together. Would you like to turn with me to Acts chapter 5? I've got quite a long passage to look at this morning, so I'm going to try and break it down into bite-sized chunks so we don't all get indigestion at the start. So we're going to start by looking at verses 12 to 16. So Acts 5 verses 12 to 16. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. That's uh, in the temple, of course. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed." So far in our walk through Acts, we've seen that Satan sought to divide, to disgrace, and to annihilate the church. To divide, to disgrace, and to annihilate the church. A strategy, I might say, that's still going on today. But because they're spirit-filled, spirit-led and spirit-empowered, the opposite is actually happening. The church is still unified rather than divided. It's still highly regarded rather than disgraced in the eyes of society and it's still growing exponentially rather than being annihilated. And we see that there in verses 12 to 14. Meanwhile, God's continuing to authenticate and to confirm the ministry of the apostles by now performing many astounding miracles through them. Look at verse 12. And you'll notice the reactions to this. And that's the title of what we're looking at this morning. Actions and reactions. They're causing Fear among some of the people, but delight among the majority of the people who can't wait. They can't wait to get their sick within contact range of the apostles so that they'll be healed. So what we've got here is a remarkable demonstration of the power of God to heal and the power of God to free human beings, as opposed to what we saw last week, as opposed to judging them, as we saw with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, interestingly, throughout the history 
of the Jews, there have always been confirming miracles at the start of a new era. Moses, you may remember, performed great miracles at the beginning of the age of the law. So did Elijah and Elisha at the beginning of the era of the prophets. And then Jesus himself, of course, performed miracles to mark the coming of the God's kingdom and the gospel to confirm his credentials as the Son of God, the Messiah, and to demonstrate God's compassion for us all. And now, the apostles, as they continued the work of Jesus, establishing his body, the church on earth, they are doing the same. It's the start of a new era. Now, let's get this clear. The important thing was not the miracles. The important thing was not the miracles. The miracles created the platform. The miracles created the opportunity for preaching the gospel and bringing people to faith and belief in Jesus Christ. Because you see, the greatest miracle we can all experience, the greatest miracle is being cleansed from our sin through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, and brought and being brought into the family of God, enabling us to experience his love and his presence daily. So I want to ask you this morning, have you experienced that greatest miracle in your life? Have you experienced that greatest miracle in your life. If not, the prayer team will be gathered over there afterwards. Please go and have a chat with them and so that they can talk about such things with you. Let's move on now to look at verses 17 to 21. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. So, as we might expect, these actions of the apostles there in the temple caused a positive reaction from the people of Jerusalem, but, not surprisingly, they caused a rather different reaction, their action, from the council of Jerusalem. That's the Sanhedrin. Now, the makeup of the Sanhedrin is interesting. On the one hand, we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priestly aristocracy. Their ambit was Jerusalem. Their orbit was around the temple, around the capital city. They never ventured out, very rarely anyway. They were the majority party. They ran the council and they toadied up to the Romans and they wanted to preserve 
the status quo. They did not want anything to change. That was the Sadducees. And across the floor from them, we have the other party in the council. They are the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were laymen. They were the laymen who ran the synagogues up and down the country. So, of course, they were much more in touch with the people than the Sadducees everywhere who kind of lived in this Roman bubble in Jerusalem. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees had completely different views on just about anything and everything. For example, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, nor did they believe in the afterlife. Some have said, of course, this is why they were sad, you see. Now, the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee himself, would very cleverly use this clear division in the council to his advantage. If you look at Acts 23, you'll see how he did this. Now, here we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees are jealous. They're jealous of the Apostle's success with the people. And so here they duly launched their second attack upon the apostles. The first, of course, what had been against Peter and John after the incident at the Gate Beautiful that we were hearing about some weeks ago. But this time it was most, if not all, of the apostles who were thrown into jail. So the whole thing is ramping up, it's escalating. So there they are in the jail. Enter the angel of the Lord. I love it when the angel of the Lord appears in the scriptures. Enter the angel of the Lord. And when the angel of the Lord appears, I tell you what, you watch out. It's not always good things, I have to say, when the angel of the Lord appears. But here it is. It is the angel's first appearance on the roller coaster. Now that conjures up an amazing picture in my mind, I don't know about you, of an angel on a roller coaster, but it's not the last appearance of the angel on the roller coaster. If you look on in Acts 8, 26 and Acts 12, 7 to 10 and verse 23, we've got more appearances of the angel of the Lord to look forward to. Now the angel's action brings them out of the prison. Hallelujah. The angel's action brings them out of the prison. Now, how did the angel do this without the guards knowing, without the guards even seeing? Well, people who've got nothing much better to do debate all this all night, and I am not going there, because if we go down that road, we'll never get back again. Brings them out of the jail, and the angel, did you notice, instructs the apostles to resume what they were doing which they act upon the following morning. So here we see the apostles obeying God rather than men, as they would put it in verse 29 when we get there. So what will be the reaction to this, the reaction of the Sanhedrin to the action of the angel and what the apostles are now doing? Let's pick up the story in verse 21. 
When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with the officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the guards' faces when they discover what's happened during the night? And can you imagine the Sadducees' faces when they hear the report and the humiliation they must have felt? They were trying to stop the signs and wonders, but the irony was that their actions only served to multiply the miracles. So the apostles are rearrested without using force, you'll notice there in verse 26, for fear of crowd reprisals. And they're brought before the Sanhedrin. Now what a contrast we have. What a contrast we have at the ensuing trial, if such it can be called, between, on the one hand, the educated, ordained council with all the status and earthly power And on the other side, the poorly educated, ordinary apostles with no status at all, but with divine power. Contrast between the council trying desperately to protect themselves and their old, dead traditions, and the apostles representing a new, dynamic church and risking their lives to share the living Word of God. The high priest accuses the apostles in verse 28. He accuses them of defying the council and of causing trouble. Now, do you notice he wouldn't even use the name Jesus, never mentions it there at all. Instead, he says, This name and this man's blood. Now, looking carefully at his charge, we can see it was, in fact, an admission. It was an admission that the church was increasing and was getting the job done. The high priest realised well enough that if the apostles were right, then the Jewish leaders had been wrong in condemning Jesus to death. But they were indeed guilty, guilty of shedding his blood. He seems to have forgotten that at the time they'd urged the people to scream, let his blood be upon us and on our children. Look back at Matthew 27, 25. 
And as the trial goes on, notice how the roles are reversed. The roles are reversed. The apostles become the judges. And the council become the accused. So, how do the apostles react to being arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin? Let's pick it up at 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, do you notice something there? The apostles don't defend themselves. The apostles don't defend themselves. They proclaim, they proclaim and they lift up Jesus. They don't defend themselves. They proclaim and lift up Jesus. They were being ambassadors. They were being ambassadors. They were being representatives of Christ, not diplomats. Not diplomats seeking to please everybody in an effort to escape punishment. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us that we are, and I quote, Christ's ambassadors. Christ's ambassadors called to proudly represent him and fearlessly to proclaim his teachings to the world. But in my experience, there is a danger that we can so often become Christ's diplomats rather than Christ's ambassadors. Become his diplomats, apologising for his teachings and trying to make them palatable to people instead of faithfully proclaiming the light of his truth to a world in darkness. The church was not called to be diplomatic. The church was called to be ambassadorial. The apostles declared in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And in so doing, they were laying down the principle of obeying God and trusting him to take care of the consequences. You see how they saw things? We're going to obey you, Lord, and we trust you to take care of the rest. We're not going to be worried about what's going to happen to us and how we're going to cope with it. We're going to obey you. We're going to trust you and we're going to believe that you're going to handle everything. And stemming from this, I might say, is also the principle of obeying the authorities unless they ask us to do things which fly in the face of God's word. So, the apostles don't defend themselves. Neither do they change their message. Neither do they think, oh, look, you know, this is getting us into a bit of hot water. Perhaps we'll water it down a bit. They don't change their message. You killed Jesus, but God raised him. You rejected him, but God vindicated him. 
God exalted him to the position of power as Lord and Saviour. And the work of the Holy Spirit is evidence that Jesus has returned to heaven and that he has sent his Spirit just as he promised. They could well have been singing some of those songs that John chose for us this morning, couldn't they? The words there. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus, and so on. So what action would the Sanhedrin now take? Let's pick it up at verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So such words of boldness from the apostles stirred the council to fury. And there's the high priest who, of course, is the the chairman, right, the leader of the council, if you like. He's there about to pronounce the death sentence when Gamaliel speaks up. Now, Gamaliel was a Pharisee, one of the few who are highly respected by the Sadducees. And he reflected the more tolerant approach of the Pharisees. He preferred cool logic, if you like, to the overheated emotions of the Sadducees. And interestingly, Paul was trained by him. Paul was trained by this same Gamaliel, if you look in Acts 22 and verse 3. Gamaliel had the apostles removed from the room and then he advised caution on the grounds of what had happened in the cases of Thudas and Judas the Galilean, both of whom, incidentally, had claimed to be the Messiah. Both of them had led failed revolts. And so he comes up with this advice, leave these men alone, let them go, For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you'll not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Verses 38 to 39. Now, we need to treat this Gamaliel principle, as you might call it, we need also to treat it with caution. It's true that what is from God will eventually triumph, while what's merely human or satanic won't in the long term. But in the short term, evil plans sometimes succeed, while good ones, conceived in accordance with God's will, sometimes fail. So it's not a reliable test for deciding what is from God and what isn't. 
Well, the Sanhedrin, as we saw, were persuaded, and they had the apostles flogged. We often slip over that word. What do you know what the flogging meant? It meant 39 lashes. Ouch. To each of them, 39 lashes across the back. Think about that. That's what they received. And they were warned as well not to speak in the name of Jesus with the implied threat of something worse than 39 lashes across the back happening to them. And then they were released. So what would the reaction of the apostles be to having such pain and humiliation inflicted on them? Verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, the powerful name, the beautiful name that we were singing about earlier, the name of Jesus. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So their reaction can be summed up in two key phrases. Number one, they rejoiced. Number two, they resumed. They rejoiced and they resumed. Amazingly, with their backs cruelly lacerated, imagine the blood, imagine the pain. They rejoiced. Why? Quote, because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. They were putting into practice, you see, what Jesus had taught them in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember? What Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount about such situations? About rejoicing when you're persecuted. About rejoicing when you're persecuted. And Peter himself clearly drew on these experiences when he wrote in his letters in future years about the meaning of suffering in the life of the believer. Peter knew what he was talking about. But notice this, that the persecution only made them trust God more. It made them trust God more and seek him for greater power in their ministry. It didn't put them off. They didn't think, oh dear, oh dear, this is going to be hard. I think I'll give this up. No. Oh no. What drove them was the ground of faith that God was building the church on. Their confession of faith that Jesus Christ, it was the Son of God, the Messiah. And that's what God's building his church on. And here we see it standing on that rock. No matter what it means for them. Now, this lays before us some very challenging questions, doesn't it? Like, for example, is this our reaction when we're despised and rejected? I don't think many of us have suffered the uh, 39 lashes, but I'm sure we've all experienced rejection. We've all experienced opposition because of our stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have to confess, rejoicing has never been my first reaction when that's happened to me most of the time. 
That's a challenging thing, isn't it? And secondly, do we ask the Spirit to empower us so that we can resume our witness as the apostles did? Or as so often, and I experienced this myself and I've done it myself, do we retreat? Instead of resuming, do we retreat into the shadows? Joe Bailey wrote, and I quote, Jesus Christ did not commit the gospel to an advertising agency. He commissioned disciples. He did not commit the gospel to an advertising agency to promote it. He commissioned disciples. And the apostles were determined to fulfill the commission Christ had given them. Are we? Or as so often in my life, is there more omission than commission? Let's be determined. Let's be determined to be faithful witnesses for our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful that those times that we fail him and we feel we've let him down, he still loves us. Just picks us up and hugs us and says, it's okay, I understand. Now, take me with you. Let's go together, let's do this. Let's be determined. And as we witness steadfastly for him, who knows what angel of the Lord experiences we may have. Let's be encouraged that God is always present with us to enable us to deal with any situation and will inspire us with what to say through the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So let's not be afraid. Let's put our trust afresh in God, as the apostles did, and revel in where that takes us. And as we do that, be prepared. Be prepared for some divine encounters and surprises. You can't say the apostles' life was anything but a thrilling life. Never a dull moment, was there, with the apostles in the early church. And when we follow Christ, you know, that's our experience too. In conclusion, looking again at verse 42, we can learn three main lessons from the way the apostles resumed their evangelism as to what our mindset and approach should be. First of all, they witnessed regularly. They witnessed regularly. Every day was E-Day. Not eBay, E-Day. Evangelism Day. They made the opportunities. They took, they made the most of every opportunity to witness. I wonder, dare we ask, dare we ask God to give us opportunities to witness before we leave home every day? Dare we? Because in my experience, when I pray that prayer, I usually get opportunities to witness. Secondly, they witnessed in the community. They went where the people were. And thirdly, they told people about Jesus and the good news that he brought. They were bold in their witness. They were empowered by the Spirit and they focused on Jesus. They were bold, they were empowered, and they were focused 
on Jesus. May God help us. May God strengthen us as we seek to be powerful witnesses for him wherever we are tomorrow. Amen. God bless you all.